Good morning, everyone. My name is Bree. I'm the Connections Pastor here, like Jared said, and it is so good to spend this morning with you guys, even if it is 99 degrees at 9.30 in the morning. We have made it into summer. Aren't we lucky? My husband keeps telling me when I'm grouchy and we get into a very hot, hot car, he goes, but remember this in December. This, that's why we live here. I said, great. It's July and 1,000 degrees. I don't want to. But glad you guys are spending the morning with us, whether here, in person, or online. And I hope you guys had a safe and fun 4th of July. We had a really good time last weekend with our waffle truck. Thank you for those that were patient. Rumor has it they burnt their first batch, so that's why they were so behind. But was delicious nonetheless. So thank you guys for your patience and understanding of that. And as Jared said, we are continuing our act series, and this marks our 11th week of it, which means we are about a third of the way through, which, woohoo, we are trucking along. It's really fun. We're kind of wrapping up part one of our series this week. Um, but we have made it, and that's really fun. But the beauty and challenge of going through a book of the Bible like this is you can't really skip over things. Um, as much as we probably would like to. And this is one of those passages, because we're going to be in Acts 5, 17 through 42 today. And to give encouragement this week, Jared sent me an email, and it said, love this text, but it's not easily preached. Perfect. <laughs> so without further ado, let's kind of jump in. So like I said, we're in Acts 5, 17 through 42. And it says, then the high priest and all of his associates, who are members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy because we just saw the apostles were doing all of these miracles. We saw the Lord at work right before this. They were arrested, and the apostles put them in... They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what that might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put, him, put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that these men be put outside for a while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. 
Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in those days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from, the house, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Whew. All right, we're done. We did it. Just kidding. But this passage, we kind of see truth go on this little journey. It takes many different forms and variations. And the first that we see is that truth is being attacked by the Sanhedrin. We see that in verses 17 through 18. And what's important is to know first who the heck the Sanhedrin is, why they feel like they have this authority. But they were the highest ruling body and court of justice among the Jewish people. It's believed that there were about 71 men and had a high priest as the chief officer, and that the Sanhedrin were the local elites. They, were, they had great scholarship, they were modest, they had strength, courage, and popularity. Like These were the top people of the Jewish law. And in Numbers 11:16, we see God call the Sanhedrin together by saying, bring me 70 men from Israel, known to you as elders and officers of the people. Take them to the tent of a meeting and have them stand there with you. The council, the Sanhedrin, was a God-ordained thing. This wasn't just a group of men doing their own thing. This at one point was really important to the kingdom of God. And apart from God, they were the final authority on Jewish law. They're important. The apostles are going up a pretty important group. They're, I was doing some reading, and the best modern comparison was that like, they're kind of like the Supreme Court. The law ends with the Sanhedrin. These are also the same people that charged Jesus with blasphemy and brought him to Pilate. So the Sanhedrin is known for stopping the work of Jesus and trying to get him to be dead and to have his name stop. And so their counsel, the plan was to stop the apostles from sharing the truth. Because here's the thing, and where it gets kind of weird, the Sanhedrin believed in God. They were scholars of the law, but they missed that connection of Jesus. And so they felt like their truth, their knowledge, everything they believed in was under attack with this knowledge and explaining of who Jesus was. They even experienced the miracle of Jesus right in front of them, of the apostles getting let out of jail. And they were so focused on protecting their legacy, their tradition, they missed the work of Jesus. Because like I said, they were followers of the law, and they believed in God, but not the resurrection of Jesus. And as the apostles continued sharing the miracles of Jesus and the gospel message, that was a direct threat to everything the Sanhedrin believed and knew. And they were protecting their understanding at all costs. They were protecting what they thought God was calling them to protect. You can't really blame them. 
And then we see truth get affirmed by the apostles in verses 29 through 32. I want to make one thing really clear. The apostles were arrested justly. According to what was asked of them, they broke the law. No one can really cry and be mad that the apostles were arrested. Peter and John didn't obey the orders to stop preaching, and the witness of the church was directly opposing the Sadducees' doctrine as they were providing evidence that Jesus was alive, and the religious leaders were envious of these untrained men, and they had been having success. The apostles knew that what they were doing was countercultural and that there was a cost. They weren't mad that they were arrested. They understood. And the apostles didn't change their message. In verse 30, it says, The God of our ancestor raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. He held the Sanhedrin responsible for the death of Jesus. He said, hey, this is your work. This is what you do. He then reiterated that Jesus was the right hand of God, pointing out where the Sanhedrin had missed the gospel message. Because as we know, if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, the New Testament, New Testament isn't really that different from the Old. We see signs and clues that Jesus is coming all throughout the Old Testament. So the apostles are like, hey, you've missed it. And ultimately, the apostles trusted God and remained faithful. They knew they couldn't serve two masters, even if it meant taking a beating or even being put to death for their actions. Had they followed the official orders and stopped preaching, they would have turned their back on their call. And the apostles had faith that God would prevail in all circumstances. And then we see Gamaliel. Couldn't quite. In verses 33 through 39. One thing that's really important to know about Gamaliel is he was a highly respected Jewish teacher. Everyone respected him. They looked up to him. When he came in, he was like the big dog setting the law of like, hey, Sanhedrin, this is what we're going to do. He was the most respected scholar of religious teaching, and his application of the law was known as merciful and tolerant. It is said that when he died, quote, there has been no more reverence for the law, and the purity and piety died out at the same time. He was respected among the masses. He knew the law, he taught the law, and he was respected. In Acts 22, verse 3, we understand that Paul studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. He was respected and knew that he could provide the best counsel to the Sanhedrin on it, how to approach the apostle. But what's really weird about the advice he gives is while it's dangerous and pretty unwise, because he's basically like, We'll see what happens. Maybe the Lord is at work. Maybe he's not. Why get our hands dirty? It wasn't entirely wrong, and it spared the lives of the apostles. Camille's argument was essentially, if Jesus was a false prophet, like we thought and like we believe, the movement is going to die. But if it is the work of God, you can't overthrow it. And as part of the Sanhedrin, it is assumed Gamaliel believed in God, but he didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, which is why he was opposing the apostles. But even though he might not have believed in the resurrection, there was a part of him that was putting trust in God. He was willing to let God prove him wrong, and this was a pivotal moment for the gospel to flourish. Because as we've learned about Gamaliel, it, there's scholars that believe he actually did end up becoming a Christian, believing in the resurrection of Jesus. 
which is why he probably had a little more delicate and logical approach to what he said. Because here's the thing about his advice. We probably won't find out for certain if he had accepted Jesus' resurrection until we all get to heaven, right? But there's this doubt. Is it possible that he did accept Jesus into his heart by that time? And he knew that if he were to come out and agree with the apostles, he probably also would have been put to death. And he understood, well, that's not right for the kingdom. That Things will stop there. Or maybe he hadn't quite yet, and it was just by error and human issues that he decided to kind of play it cool, be like, whatever, if it doesn't come to anything, that happens. And so we kind of see this God can work in any of those areas, right? I like to believe that he probably had a little tug on his heart from God and that he started to accept Jesus from there. But Gamil knew that if the apostles said was truly the work of God, there was no stopping it or impeding it. But if, and like I said, if he outright said that, he probably would have died too, and that wouldn't have been helpful. So instead of a defending the apostles, he basically reduced their mission to the failed missions that we read earlier, saying that the apostles were telling the truth, God will fail, and if not, or if they were telling the truth, God will prevail, and if not, they will fail. Which we know not really to be true, because Mark Twain says, a lie runs around the world while truth is putting on her shoes. We know that sometimes the truth of God takes some time. Sometimes in ministry we say that it's a crock pot, not an instapot can't always just put things together and the work of God is magically done. And I know in my life, the work of God has taken some time. So in the end, we know God is victorious, but sometimes Satan can have a strong influence. It's kind of like fad dieting. Fad diets will always come in like a storm. And in the first few weeks or days or months, you think they're working. And then people will fall off or find a new diet. And there was this trend on social media that went around a while ago that me and the interns and some of the other female on staff were talking about because this one girl put LaCroix, which is sparkling water, and balsamic vinegar together and said it tasted just like Coke with no sugar. Sure. So then everyone went around trying it and were like, absolutely not, this is disgusting. But I want to know how many people tried it. And we were standing in the kitchen and there was a part of me that was like, but maybe it could be. It doesn't, just for the record. It does not. It tastes like vinegary bubble water, which the weirdest part of this, this is a tangent, was that she was like, it can be any flavored bubble water. I don't understand how that works and why any of us thought that that would work. It doesn't. But that's the thing about fad diets and truth. Fad diets come and go. I mean, keto's really big around right now, but you can even talk about like those quick fix exercise things where they wiggle and you're magically supposed to lose all your weight? <laughs> Did that work for anyone? <laughs> and so we know that truth takes some time. Dieting takes some time. Working out takes some time. And so we have the council who attracts truth, the apostles who affirm truth, and Gamaliel who flirted with the truth. But where does that leave the church? And how is the church called to respond? In verses 40 through 42, we see the apostles go and celebrate. And that's what the church is called to do. We are called to go celebrate. The apostles left not having died, but they were beaten. It wasn't like they were let go unscathed. They had still been beaten. They 
were still told they were wrong, and they left rejoicing. Verse 42 says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The apostles carried on without anger, malice, or revenge. William Temple says the church is called to fight without hatred, resist without bitterness, and in the end, if God grant it so, to triumph without vindictiveness. We are called to celebrate through it all. James 1, 1 through 3, uh, out of the message says, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into open and show its true colors. The apostles didn't leave unscathed. They were still beaten, probably by being stoned, which has killed people before. It wasn't like a slap on the wrist, and they still went and taught. And in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus told them that they should expect persecution, but to rejoice in this. Because they were faced with opposition, they knew that the work of the Lord was happening. They were so excited because they understood that they were a part of the mission of God. And I think in times in life, we tend to either attack the truth, flirt with truth, and affirm the truth. But there's this one thing that truth calls of us. Truth provokes change. You cannot experience truth and hear truth and be unchanged. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a terrible baker. Terrible. I try. My heart is to be a baker. Don't ever accept baked goods from me. Because when Ryan and I first got married, my goal was to be the wife that made cookies for everyone. And I wanted at least 10 different varieties and loaves and everything. Because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. In our first year of marriage, I set up all of my KitchenAids and everything into the kitchen and baked my little heart out. And then I let Ryan taste one of my cookies. And sweet, sweet Ryan looked at me and kind of smiled and goes, yum. And in that moment, I was like, oh no, I did something wrong. And I was like, is, is it okay? And he goes, yeah. I was like, okay, what's, what actually happened? What's wrong? And I kind of pressed him and he finally delicately told me, he goes, it's a little salty. It's like, huh. That's not how I want my chocolate chip cookies to taste. So I went back and realized, instead of one teaspoon of salt, I put a whole tablespoon of salt. Don't do that. Read your directions. <laughs> but because Ryan came forward and told me the truth, I was able to kind of go back, reflect, and figure out what the heck I did wrong. And now, so I remade them. And now I have decided every Christmas, instead of making a bunch of new ones, I'll master one recipe and do that every year. And then next year, I'll do that one and then add one new one. No more doing 12. So women at the Christmas cookie exchange, I promise it won't be terrible. I hope. <laughs> but when we are confronted with truth, we can either hold on and fight and attack the truth. And I could have yelled at Ryan and said, they're not too salty, you're wrong. That is exactly what the recipe called for. Nope. Or I could engage with the truth, go back to the recipe, and realize, oh, I was wrong, and make a change. You cannot find out about truth and be unchanged. It's like in marriage. If I were to go to Ryan and say, hey, this action is hard for me, and tell him the truth about my feelings, 
hopefully, as a husband, he's not gonna take that and go, bummer, nothing else I can do. The goal of a marriage, the goal of a relationship is when you find out truth, you are changed. It is your responsibility to change. And so when you find out the truth about Jesus, you cannot be unchanged. And so in our life, are we more like the apostles or are we more like the Sanhedrin? The apostles experienced the truth of Jesus and were changed. The Sanhedrin were told the truth yet were unchanged. They had seen the truth and still couldn't get there. And to be honest, there's no universal answer. No matter where you are today, and there are a bunch of people living like the Sanhedrin and a bunch living like the apostles, I want to make one thing clear. Both were trying to live their life after God the way they thought they were supposed to. The Sanhedrin were living their life according to the way God had originally told them. Someone in this room might feel more like the Sanhedrin. And if you're like that, you might be feeling like there's a bunch of people trying to change something that you think is the best way or more God-honoring way to do things. The Sanhedrin thought that that's what they were doing and preserving the law was the most God-honoring way to live. And I cannot blame them. So often I get stuck and my God only moves in this way and this way and this way in my life. And there is no other way he could possibly be moving. And it's so easy to point our fingers and label a Sanhedrin as the bad guys in the story. But if we truly reflect, they were just so stuck in their ways, they missed the glory and the beauty of Jesus at work. They had their pride issues and they weren't completely faultless. However, we can have empathy to see where they were coming from. They've devoted their lives to this and they were good at it. And there's probably a lot of us in the room who feel that way. But the true question is, if God is moving and if Jesus is doing something, is our first response to shut it down? Or are we willing to have a conversation and entertain the thought that Jesus might be moving in a way we didn't expect him to? Do we engage with the Holy Spirit? And to be very clear, not everything or every, everything or anyone that says it's of the Holy Spirit is. Be wise, have discernment, but is our instinct always to shut it down? Because when we shut it down, we're not allowing Jesus to move. When God is working and when our church and Jesus is moving, people will notice. Oftentimes we get comfortable in our rhythm or routine and have our preferences. But when God is trying to change the things in our life, those things on the inside of us, we get uncomfortable. What the apostles did was good, but it wasn't viewed as such. But what the apostles also did was they changed the world. When God is moving in our life, confronting the truth, we do the exact same thing as the Sanhedrin, or we choose the, light, the route of the apostles. When we see something that is changing from what is comfortable or safe, or what we think is the right thing to do, and we stay in our ways, we risk imprisoning the work of God in our heart instead of letting him do it. Maybe you feel like the apostles, the ones that changed the world. When we see things that need to be changed and we see the steps that need to be taken, the world is constantly beating down on us. It's an uphill battle to be the apostles. They counted it as a joy to be beaten. I don't envy those that feel like an apostle either. It's not an easy place to be. But regardless, if you identify as the Sanhedrin or the apostles, they are trying to follow God the best that they could. Like I said, it's so easy to point the Sanhedrin as the bad guys. It's so easy to. 
But I think if I'm being honest with you, that's probably the most I'm like. I hate change. I am a control freak to the max. I can have stories for days about how I hate change. But they were following God the best they could. If you are truly pursuing a relationship with Jesus, are you open to him moving? And if so, are you rejoicing in the truth that we have access to? Because friends, either way, regardless where you are, there's hope to be found. Jesus' plan, God's work, was not blocked or inhibited or spurred on by the Sanhedrin or the apostles. Our God is an unchanging God. He wasn't surprised by what happened. And there's hope in both. Gamaliel's argument is that the Sanhedrin, to the Sanhedrin, is that they cannot throw, overthrow it if it's of God. And that's a true statement. We, me, Bree, cannot stop the work of God. But I have this invitation to be an active part of the relationship with Jesus. I get an active part into the kingdom. We get to be active participants in the kingdom, but we cannot thwart the mission of God. So friends, I don't know where you stand, how you feel about change, whether you welcome it or hide from it, but I hope you leave this place knowing that there is hope in both. There is a call to change. There is a call to be an active participant in the kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing here at Desert City Church and in the kingdom. God, may we engage with you in the ways that you're moving. May we be changed humans because of what you're putting on our hearts today. God, may we pursue a relationship with you and have that be our first priority over holding on to our preferences, our ideas, and our ways of life. God, may we pursue you and be more active in pleasing you than pleasing ourselves today. God, we are so thankful for the work that you're doing and that we get to be active participants in your kingdom God, you are so good, and we are just so thankful for the way that you move. In your name we pray. Amen.